The seeds of an anti-racist movement are scattered all over Arkansas. You can find them in small river towns and in mountain hollers and in rural public school auditoriums. Most of them are subtle, but that's kind of the point. Waving the banner of anti-racism won't fly in most of the rural South, so organizers are trying to start small. For this final episode of the series, let's focus on one big takeaway. All anti-racist organizing in the South or involving Southerners starts on a small scale. As sit-ins at ice cream parlors and lunch counters, or as voter education classes in the rural Cotton Belt, or as a hillbilly street gang turned tenants' rights group in Chicago. When we take a big sweeping look back at the history of anti-racism in the South, it's easy to lose track of the people who gave their energy to organizing in their hometown, in their neighborhood, in their church. But we won't know what's next for Arkansas, and for the South as a whole, and the country as a whole, unless we pay attention to the small stuff. From KUAF Public Radio, and with funding from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, I'm Paul Kiefer, and this is The Movement That Never Was, a people's guide to anti-racism in the South and Arkansas. So let's end the series by getting to know the lay of the land. And we'll start big and zoom in from there. All over Arkansas, small community groups are embracing the idea of rural solidarity, usually poor and working-class solidarity, as the path towards healthier rural communities. And within those groups, there are the building blocks for a rural anti-racist movement. And as it happens, there are also statewide networks that might help a movement like that take off. One of them is the Rural Communities Alliance, a political advocacy group made up of volunteers from small towns and rural counties across Arkansas. The Rural Communities Alliance mostly focuses on fighting against rural school closures. That's their bread and butter. A school in a rural community is literally, you know, a heartbeat. (laughs) That's Candace Williams, the group's executive director. She's from Elaine in the Delta. They lost their school district to consolidation in 2006, and that prompted her to get involved in the Rural Communities Alliance. On its surface, fighting for the survival of rural public schools isn't inherently an anti-racist cause, but it's a cause that can get a broad coalition of people onto the same team and into the same room. We have very conservative members. We have members that are liberal. We you know, black, white, different parts of the state. And we were always able to um, to work together around rural education issues. And getting volunteers from rural white communities to join forces with rural communities of color has provided a window of opportunity to introduce some nuance into conversations about rural solidarity. That window got even bigger when the Rural Communities Alliance held its annual conference in Elaine in 2019 the 100th anniversary of the massacre that left lasting scars on the region's black community. Williams says that the conference involved a bus trip to the site where the massacre began, a black church burned to the ground by a white mob. So many of our members, especially our white members, they say, Candace, we didn't even know this has happened. Some of our members in the southwest region, they came and said, we didn't know anything about this. So I feel like that laid the groundwork for our most recent efforts around this conversation, this very uncomfortable <laughs> conversation of how race um, has played a part in um, 
the Delta looking like the Delta looks, you know, just being very frank and being so under-resourced and so poor. But Williams says she still has to raise the subject of race delicately. Even if fighting for rural public schools creates a window of opportunity to bring up racial justice, there still isn't a clear path for her to bring anti-racism to the forefront of what the Rural Communities Alliance does. We want just and thrive in rural communities. And that has been what I use. I, and I understand the, the dynamic of what the state is now, you know. Um, so everything we did that I personally wanted to speak out against, as an organization, I have not done that because we're in this position now where we have this very diverse membership. Um, don't want to like shut anybody out, but we don't want to uh, be silent on things that we really need to have a voice on. That's the harsh reality for a lot of organizers in Arkansas trying to promote anti-racism. If they try to build a broad coalition by keeping their anti-racism subtle, they're still waiting for a chance to shift away from subtlety towards the start of a bona fide anti-racist movement. And that's true even when you zoom in closer. A coalition between two towns on the opposite sides of Arkansas can be a tricky thing to keep alive. A coalition between neighbors in a single rural town has the potential to be even more tricky. But that kind of pressurized environment is also a good testing ground for the longevity of a movement. And one of those testing grounds is on a quiet residential street near the Arkansas River in Dardanelle. It's called the McElroy House. I wound up inheriting what had been my mom's parents' house, my grandparents' house, which I had pretty much grown up in. You know, I didn't want to rent it out. Um, I didn't want to profit off of it or anything like that. Um, I wanted to like figure out a way to make it into a community uh, center and give back to the community. My grandparents had always been like super welcoming people. And uh, there was always people in the living room when I was growing up and stuff like that. And um, That's Meredith Martin Motes, a Dardanelle local, folklorist, and a former KUAF reporter who helped bring the McElroy house into being over the past decade. And she says that the point of the McElroy House is to help Dardanelle get to know itself better. Its past, its value, and how a community like Dardanelle, a small and relatively poor southern town, can band together to fix local problems. It's inspired by a similar project in a historical black neighborhood in western Kentucky. The goal is to rebuild a sense of community and identity. But Meredith is tackling that project in a town that's mostly white, so building an identity is a delicate task. This is a place where there's a lot of um, white supremacist organizing. Um, so like that is, um, you know, it wasn't too awfully long ago that we had literal Nazis march in Russaville, which is like one town over. So, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is provide alternatives um, for people in the community Um I think a lot of times white Southerners are sort of given like this one option. Like if you are, you know, love being from the South and you love your family, then you have to do this sort of trajectory of like pro-Confederacy. You know, I think that like we want to provide options for people that 
are not that, that that's not the only path or the other path is, well, I've got to move away to some other like big city or I've got to move, you know, to some place that's super progressive or something like that. You know, like those are not the only two options. Like you don't have to wind up as a white supremacist or move. But Dardanelle has changed in the past few decades. These days, notably, about 40 percent of the town is Latinx. Rural America is not all white. And I think that's a really big myth. And Meredith says that the goal of the McElroy House is to tie together all of Dardanelle, to help people feel an attachment to the place and to their neighbors. So I think our big push is we're trying to carve out a space where um, there are a myriad of options for people to understand history and move forward um, thinking about um, what makes this town equal for everyone, or not just town, but this whole region. Um, And, you know, how do we love where we come from while at the same time being able to look it straight in the eye and understand exactly what the injustices and struggles are? Like, to be able to hold both of those things at the same time. And she says that a lot of that work comes down to helping people understand where they're from. That can take a lot of forms. The house hosts community conversations and gardening workshops and skill-sharing sessions about weatherizing houses. It has a really eclectic calendar. The Macquarie House a lot of times does, for lack of a better word, the kind of gritty, mundane work. It's not very flashy, typically. But importantly, those mundane workshops get people from Dardanelle into the same room or at least down on their knees next to each other in a garden. It doesn't always mean that people hold hands and sing kumbaya. A lot of times people think that when we're like, we bring people together across difference and everything is just like happy and it's kittens and it's rainbows and that is absolutely not what it's like. I mean, there have been a lot of discussions at the Macquarie House that have been downright um, volatile and contentious. Um, But it's still a way to build a sense of solidarity in Dardanelle. I've seen people learn what DACA even is. I've seen people, I've watched people be like, wait a minute, you came here when you were two, and now you can't go to school without out-of-state tuition, even though you graduated from our local high school with a 4.0, and you got a scholarship, but you can't use it because you're going to have to pay out-of-state tuition. But you're, like, we're on the football team, and, like, this is your hometown, but according to our laws, you're not really a citizen fully. I've seen people learn that information, like, firsthand in a conversation at the Macquarie House because people just literally didn't know it before. And Meredith thinks that having a house near Front Street with an overflowing community garden that invites people from Dardanelle to be neighborly is, in an understated way, a kind of anti-racism. And a lot of that comes down to the McElroy House's role in making people feel hopeful about their town. Hope that Dardanelle can be a supportive place where people take pride in knowing and looking out for their neighbors. But a lot of this is aspirational. As long as the McElroy House has existed, it still hasn't managed to become the kind of gathering place that Meredith hopes it will be. But the longer the house exists, the more people in town see it as a chance to get some wheels turning. One of those people is Haroza Meza. Uh, well, I was actually born in Mexico, and um, I came here when I was eight, and I've been here ever since. I'm 24 now. Haro has been showing up for conversations at the McElroy House for a while. For him, it's a point of hometown pride, and it isn't intimidating to step in the door. They're kind of random chairs, kind of gives it a little bit of a more accommodating feeling because it's nothing serious, it's nothing um, 
I mean, it is serious. The topics are serious, but the setting isn't. And Haro sees the McElroy house as a conduit to help families like his, families who immigrated to Dardanelle from Mexico and Central America in the past few decades, to set down roots in Dardanelle. And even on a basic logistical level, that's a tough task. So normally uh, you would get people that, like, for example, all these poultry uh, factories that we have here that would work 12 to, you know, if they, if you allow them, they'll work 12 to 16 hour shifts. So a lot of them don't really have time to do any of the community activities. And if they do have time, they're usually, you know, whenever they do have time, they're usually exhausted and uh, would rather be at home with their families. But as non-confrontational as the McElroy house may be, in a town that can be hostile to immigrants and a small town where stirring the pot can create big ripples, Harrow's also had a hard time convincing other Latinx people in Dardanelle that getting involved in the McElroy house is a good idea. To an extent, I feel like they, what they would rather do is just stay uh, hidden, stay, stay secluded, so that they're not a target. They don't want to be seen as, as uh, a group of people that are causing trouble in the community because they know that, you know, they're already in a kind of a bad situation as it is. But Dardanelle is Haro's hometown. So to him, it's just a matter of trying over and over again. A cultural festival he organized with the McElroy House didn't pan out as he hoped, but when he told people at a community conversation that basic things like the town's trash pickup schedule weren't available in Spanish, he managed to cobble together enough support to fix the problem. But as much as the McElroy House is about building a hyper-local coalition, or a healthy rural town, or a sense of local pride, so that people like Haro can sort out fixes to local problems, Meredith says there's another real core goal to the project. Like a core goal of the McElroy House is what do you build beyond whiteness? In some ways, that's part and parcel with the goal of building a healthier town. The McElroy House can remind white people in town that collaborating with their neighbors produces a lot more good than embracing white nationalism. A lot of the, you know, white supremacist organizing is basically like playing on this idea that like what little power you have, they want to take it. And if you don't um, hold on and grow that power, you will become completely irrelevant and completely without a home. And, uh, like, you know, and the fact that you're already kind of poor and white trash, so to speak, um, you will even become more so. And so, you know, it's this sort of question of, um, you know, how do you not think in terms of everything you're going to lose, but the kind of, like, community that you're going to build. But she says the McElroy House is also about building a sense of pride and identity for white people in Dardanelle. But not white pride. It's a different kind of pride, one that Meredith hopes can fuel an anti-racist movement. I think that's one of the things that, like, um, a lot of organizing that's more progressive or left um, often really gets so horribly wrong is um, is not understanding the importance of having um, 
you know, cultural identity around being proud of who you are and being proud of where you come from and that you can hold that complexity of both saying like, this part is horrible. We're not continuing to do that. Also, we are people who are, you know, insert whatever your regional, you know, strengths are, right? You don't, you have to have both of those things um, to, for people to feel alive. For Meredith and for a lot of other white people in Dardanelle, that means developing a sense of pride in being from rural Arkansas. She's talking about the more fundamental things that make a culture. I absolutely love the culture I come from in a lot of ways, the like resilience and like gardening and the hunting and the rural life ways and, you know, the toughness and like, I mean, all that stuff is incredibly important. um, I think to our community identity, I think our job is to wrestle that stuff away from the, from the, the racism that, um, you know, is part of the, is part of that. Like we can, we have to be able to say like, we can untangle these. And to Meredith, the McElroy house gives her and other like-minded people in Dardanelle a chance to focus on the things from their culture that aren't about whiteness, that aren't imbued with white supremacy. And in Dardanelle, that means building pride in things, in, in quilting or in gardening or in self-sufficiency that aren't exclusive to white people at all. The way she sees it, it's a chance to give people an identity that can outlast whiteness. Meredith says she doesn't want to see white people in Dardanelle forget their past, as ugly as it may be. But as she sees it, the point of getting to know the history of Dardanelle, and the point of getting to know the history of racism and classism and whiteness and everything else that shaped it, is to remember why families like hers were willing to keep racism alive, and then to figure out how people like her can avoid repeating the same mistakes. Because I think sometimes, like white people, can get really hooked, like hung up on um, um, erasing, denying, or being too too ashamed of their past and their family, and that's really not functional at all. It doesn't move anything forward. But Meredith knows that a community garden isn't the epitome of radical anti-racism. And she knows her optimism would seem out of place in most anti-racist circles. But she says that the McElroy House can make a bigger impact if it focuses on building a model for a healthy Dardanelle. We're not very good poster children for the white anti-racist movement because we tend to be hyper, like, local. um, And because we'll often work across divisions that a lot of other people won't do um, because, uh, you know, like, you know, they're more, they want to be more radical and things like that. Um, And, you know, but for us, like are we, we feel very strongly about working within this community and being accountable to black leaders and other communities, but working here specifically here. And she thinks that's the key to sticking around and shaping the future of Dardanelle. A lot of people, you know, would say that the McElroy house is like too safe. And, you know, I would in some ways agree. I would also say that the McElroy house will not go away. It is consistent and it will remain consistent. So what lays ahead for Southern anti-racism? In the end, a lot of it will come down to a question we touched on a few times in this series the type of coalition-building work that defines a lot of the anti-racist organizing in today's South is about convincing people, and especially white people, that anti-racism is in their best interest. 
but that creates a tricky threshold to cross. When anti-racist organizing requires white people to give something up, the model stumbles. But the aftermath of Freedom Summer in the mid-1960s is a case study about what happens when anti-racist organizing requires white people to be altruistic. Like SNCC organizer Michael Simmons said in our first episode, when the dust had settled after a few summers worth of voting rights campaigns, a lot of black SNCC volunteers like him wound up seeing white volunteers as an obstacle to real racial justice, not contributors to it. Instead, Michael said that he and his black colleagues wanted to see white civil rights activists turn their attention to white people, which leaves a big question unanswered. What will it take to reach a balance? Meredith put it a little differently. How do you move something from fragility to foundation? 